Bibles with you, open up Nehemiah chapter 4, and uh, we'll continue to take a look at, at the lessons the Lord has for us from the book of Nehemiah. Remember, as we look at, uh, at Nehemiah, this is uh, the end of the history, basic history, for the nation of Israel, leading into 400 years of silence, and then ultimately the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. So, it's God's, uh, it's God's last, uh, working until we, we see, uh, Messiah on the scene. Now you remember last time we went through all the gates. They were repairing the walls. And each of the gates had, uh, a meaning and symbolism. And as we follow the gates, we could see the gates telling us, uh, uh, the concept of the gospel, where we go oftentimes in our walk with Christ. Well, as we come to chapter four, we are introduced to the enemies. As soon as they are begin working, as soon as they start doing something, hopefully we uh, we all are aware of this in, in some way. As soon as we begin moving forward with the Lord comes the ridicule of the enemy, the ridicule of Satan or the ridicule of his minions to try to discourage God's people from doing what they're doing. Uh, discouraging you for why do you go to church? Discouraging you for, for why you would spend so much time doing something like that. You know, just a, just a, a religious thing. You know, you don't have to get too carried away with it. But they, they don't understand the concept. They don't understand the concept that as we come to the, the pages of scripture, if we give our life to Christ, it's a lifestyle. It's not a, it's not just a system. It's not just a ritual. It's not just a thing we do. It becomes who we are. It says in, in chapter 4, verse 1, It so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and indignant, and he mocked the Jews. So what we see, one of the first things we see Satan doing to try to discourage, to try to bring down what God's people are doing, they begin to mock. Now that's nothing new. If you know the story of David and Goliath, you know that Goliath mocked David before the battle. If you've read the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you know the soldiers mocked him and the people on the road mocked him. The the attack of the enemy often comes like this. First, ridicule, mocking begins. So let's look. Not only it says were we rebuilding the wall, he was furious and indignant and mocked the Jews, but it goes on. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and he said... What are these feeble Jews doing? So when he begins, he begins ridiculing the workers. It starts with them. What are these feeble there? Weak. The word feeble there means not even able to care for yourself. So the idea that these guys couldn't take care of themselves, how are they going to build a wall? So he starts with them. But he doesn't just ridicule the workers, then he ridicules the work. Look, will they fortify themselves? Are they going to finish the wall? These guys, you know, we talked last time. Some of them were jewelers. Some of them were perfumers. Some of them, a majority of them were farmers. They were, they were, saw a need and came to be a part of the solution, but, but not many of them were stone workers. But as they came together, this is the, these are the charges, the ridicule, um, the language of the enemy. So, you're too feeble. You can't do it. Ah, you're, you, you don't even really understand what you're doing. Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? The idea of that. Will they offer sacrifices is this. God's not even going to help them. Are they going to offer sacrifices? You think you can pray and make that wall go up? God's not going to help you. 
Will they complete it in a day? He says, oh, they don't even understand how big a job this is. A big job. And they're out there, you know, all these guys with trials trying to, trying to rebuild their wall. And then, not only uh, 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 mocking the work, but, uh, but they even go on to, to complain about what they use. Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? Stones that are burned? Uh, they laughed at them because they were using the parts of the wall that had been knocked down. The stuff that Nebuchadnezzar had brought and, and, and drug on the ground, the things that were burned and chipped, that's what they were building the wall with. And so they, they are ridiculing the workers and they're ridiculing the job and they're, they're saying, you don't know what you're doing and you're not going to be able to finish it and God's not even going to be able to help you. And all those things are the same tools God uses today uh, or, or that God's enemies use today against God's people. To ridicule the work, the call, the desire to do whatever it might be that, that God is leading you to do. It's a, the very same thing. In fact, it shouldn't shock us because if you look at Hebrews chapter 11 um, as the, in, the, in the hall of faith, in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 36, it says, speaking of those who would walk by faith and not by sight, it says, still others had trials of mockings. Trials of mockings. People just making fun of them. Saying how stupid this is. How lame this is. So, all of those things are... That's the language of the enemy. Ridicule is the language of the enemy. And, and hopefully, we can learn to stop speaking it. Because a lot of us speak it really well. I know I'm pretty fluent. I don't know about you guys. And uh, uh, oftentimes I say sarcasm is one of the many gifts that I offer that, that I'm more than happy to bestow. But sarcasm is something that, that uh, became a, a pretty big hindrance in my marriage for a long time. And I, I was charged by God to find a new way to learn to talk to my wife. Ah, I'm not perfect. And nor have I forgotten the language of ridicule. But it helps me to remember, that's not the language Jesus spoke. That's not. I don't care what you try to tell yourself. Sometimes we say things like, oh, you know, he's a pretty fun-loving guy. You know, I'm sure he, I'm sure he did have fun. But I don't think he had to have fun through ridicule. Yeah. So when we look at it and when we concentrate on, on what God's Word is laying out for us, I, I don't believe that's the language that God would have us talk. The language of ridicule. It goes on. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, it'll break down their stone wall. So now they ridicule the finished product. Now, even if you get it done, a fox could knock down your wall. These are the enemies of God surrounding the work that they're trying to do and just ridiculing the people. So what does Nehemiah do? Now, I might be tempted to pick up a stone, see how far I could throw it, or to grab a big stick, or to take, or to take measures into my hand. But Nehemiah doesn't do any of those things. The, the Scripture says, Nehemiah in verse 4 began to pray. He started praying. He said, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Lord, hear what they're saying. Now, when we, when we look at this, we have to understand. When we look at this prayer, it's not Nehemiah asking for God to get them. 
It's, it's what's called an imprecatory prayer. It's a, a prayer based on the fact that we are doing what God wants to do. So the people who are trying to disrupt or destroy or interrupt what we're trying to do, may they fall into their own traps. The things they're trying to, to do against us, may those things be turned around on them. And if you read the scriptures, you'll see those kind of things happen quite a bit. For example, when you read the book of Esther, there's a giant gallows built to hang all the Jews. But the guys who built the gallows end up hanging on the gallows. Or the fellows that had Daniel thrown to the lion's den. What happened to them? They ended up in the lion's den. So a lot of times when we through or when people through deceit or or lies or the language of the enemy seek to destroy God's people, the very things that they are trying to do to destroy end up coming back upon them. So as we look at the prayer, that's what we're talking about. So... He says, for we are despised, so turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. So basically, all that they're doing to us, just Lord, let it hit us. You guys remember when you were kids and you you get in a name calling game and you'd say, well, I'm rubber and you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Nobody remembers that. It's the same thing. It's the idea that what they're saying, with the way that they're behaving toward us, you know, God, just bring bring that down on them. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builder. So all Nehemiah does, he don't even he don't even address them. He just prays. Like God, you got our back. And we're going to keep going. So then it says in verse 6, So we built the wall. This is what they did. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. So they begin ridiculing, right? And as they begin ridiculing, it doesn't have a great effect. So the wall gets tied together, and it's half as tall as it's supposed to be. So the enemies of God decide, well, that first thing didn't work. Ridicule's not working. Ridicule's not working. But what we discover is they begin to sow seeds of discouragement. And where ridicule couldn't work, discouragement could. Let's look what it says. It says in, in verse 7, Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, heard the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. Now what I want you to know about all those names is all those guys hated each other. They were not buddies. They were enemies. But whenever the Lord is involved, people who usually can't get together can get together against God. The, the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they hated each other. But what do we see them doing? Coming together to try to get Jesus. The same kind of thing is going on here. These guys are all enemies. They're gathering together. The enemies are coming together. They're making a plot. It's funny how sometimes people who can't seem to work together normally have no problem in opposing the work that God's trying to do. So they, they come together. It says, and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. But what's Nehemiah do? There's Nehemiah's answer again in verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. 
So now they start making these little attacks. So once it was just ridicule. You guys with me? Now they're making these little probing attacks. Not, not trying to wipe anybody out, just, just making little probing attacks. And as they do it, that begins to bring discouragement. They, they, the people get tired of all the little battles. Ever been tired of the little battles? You ever get tired of constantly having to deal with something or constantly having to, to face an event in your life or a struggle in your life or a difficulty in your life? And, and we can, if we'll take our eyes off of God and put our eyes on the waves, we do what Peter did, right? Peter, when he was walking on the water, he was trucking pretty good. But the Bible says, as soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking at the waves, what happened? He sunk. Discouragement dropped him, just like that. He, he started to worry about the waves. He started to worry about the wind. And he stopped seeing how great his God was. Sometimes we get weary by the battle. We get weary by the struggle. We get weary about the things that are going on. And we take our eyes off of God and we put our eyes on a problem. And the problem gets humongous. And we forget about the ability of God to get us through. Two problems when people are dealing with a struggle. God wanted them to struggle. He brought the struggle. Occasionally, when I have opportunity to counsel with married couples, I don't know if they always like what I have to say, but according to the Bible, the Bible says, in your marriage you will have conflict. It's supposed to be there. Because the only way you will grow together is by learning to overcome conflict. Now, how you overcome conflict... It has everything to do with whether or not you have a joyful marriage or a struggling marriage. But there's no, everybody's always thinking that there's something else, right? But I've shared the, I've shared the, the the percentages with you. If 50% of first marriages fail, 75% of second, 85% of third, and it keeps going up and up and up the more you try. Because people are looking for some easy path around, if I find the right person, there won't be conflict. No. There will always be conflict. The, the, the point is to learn to meet each other in that conflict, to overcome conflict without trying to kill each other. If we learn to do that, well, we'll have peace. God brings conflict into your life. And praying, God, take this conflict away, is always answered, but not how you like it. Because a lot of times, God's answer is, no, you need this conflict. Remember I told you, when I when I first got married, I was, I was very sarcastic. I, I did not talk very nicely. And... And I brought that into my marriage and thought my wife should just accept me for how I am. But that's not what God's Word says. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word calls a man to lay down his life for his wife. God's Word tells the woman to do that which does not come natural to her for her husband. We're supposed to, to reach across that chasm, right? And learn to speak to my wife how I should. And she reaches across that chasm to me and, and learns how to meet 
that need in me. Conflict in marriage. Conflict in life. And you're not married, but there's conflict. There's struggles. As a coach, I on purpose put conflict in my players' lives. Because through conflict, they got better. Through conflict, they overcame obstacles. For them, it's just a game. So they would overcome the, an, the obstacle being the next team. But the truth is the same. Learning to overcome conflict makes us stronger. So God brought the conflict. He allowed those guys to come against them. And what did it show them? It showed them how easily they could be discouraged. What that conflict teaches me is that I've got to learn to keep my eyes on Jesus. I've got to learn to keep my eyes and my trust on the Lord for all the way through, for all the little things that, that happen. There are people here who, who struggle with a, a variety of illnesses. We have several people in the, in the church here at Calvary Chapel Buell that have RA. Well, that don't ever go away. And it's a constant pain. And it's a constant source of hassle. And you're constantly having to change medication to try to deal with how you're hurting. And, and as much as I would love to be able to touch them and take it all away, because the Lord has allowed it, because it stays and it hasn't gone, there are things that God uses that for to develop character in people. And character brings hope. And hope won't disappoint. Because it tells us that God loves me anyway. Even though it's hard, God still loves me. And that's what they needed to understand. As they're building the wall and these guys throw spears at them. And, and they get wounded and they get hurt. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, why can't this just be easy? And all the while God's saying, look, even though life is hard. And even though this is a struggle, I still love you. You just stick with me. Stick with me. Because if you'll quit there, you were going to quit anyway. You were going to give up anyhow. I quit. Them two words ought to be stricken from every human being's vocabulary. And it becomes a habit. And some people, that habit is way too easy. Every time something gets tough. So, God brought the conflict. But that conflict that came against them, it says in verse 10, really began to boil out out of Judah of all places. Judah, it says, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing and there's so much rubbish. We are not able to build the wall. We're not able. There's too much garbage. too much trash. There's too much going on. There's too many things happening in my life. Well, I hear that from a lot of people. I got a lot of things going on. I'm, I'm, I'm stressed or I'm overwhelmed. It's not a new cry. It's a cry of discouragement against the attacks of the enemy. And our adversaries, they said, they, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Or they, they, they just keep coming. They're not going to ever stop. They, they, we got to stop working and we just got to, we got to, we got to fight or we got to quit or we should go back home or we should stop all this. They got their eyes off the Lord and they, they got their eyes onto the problem and the problem overwhelmed them and they began to lose heart. 
Now here's what we learn from reading the rest of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6 and Nehemiah chapter 13 tell us that many in the tribe of Judah had married outside of Israel and were married to the people who were attacking them. So they had they had a compromise with the people outside that was robbing them of joy and strength and peace. And when we look at discouragement, oftentimes those who who are discouraged first are the ones that have had that occur in their life. There's some kind of compromise. They're 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 really not committed. And so they're the first ones to start saying, oh, you know, this is a hassle. We probably really shouldn't be doing this. This isn't any good. It's certainly not any good for me. And as they begin to spread that kind of talk, it, it becomes an, uh, uh, an uproar with among the people. And they begin to lose heart. They begin to lose heart and want to quit. So it was when the Jews who drew or who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times... Now, that word, ten times, that's a Hebrew idiom, for they just kept telling us, we can't do it. They kept telling us, we're not able to build the wall. They kept telling us, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Oh, we got to do something. Something's happening. So the discouragers are the doubters and the complainers, and that robs the workers of their heart. They start to lose heart. So what happens? Nehemiah has a solution. The workers begin to lose heart. So he says, Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So he begins to set guards. Now he didn't have you just guard some random place. I don't know how many of you guys ever had guard duty. But... I, I I was occasionally in trouble in the Marine Corps and would come up with guard duty now and again. And guard duty is is pretty close to worse than death. Because you're standing on a piece of ground you don't care about, guarding some stupid box of whatever that you don't care about, and and all you can imagine is, oh, please, God, let my time pass quickly. And it, you weren't sleepy at all until you started guard duty and as soon as you start a guard duty all of a sudden all the weariness in your life hits you and you just knew some some officers waiting for you to fall asleep your head to bounce and he'll come around the corner and scream at you because it's great fun for them to watch you have a heart attack jump all over the place and and so guard is no you won't do that but that's not what nehemiah did look nehemiah set them around their homes he said, the enemy's going to attack, alright? He armed the people, and he said, you take care of the wall by your house. You protect your family. You guard your kids and your wife. Well, now all of a sudden when you're on guard duty, is a little different, right? That's something that you care about. That's something that you want to protect. And it stirred the hearts of the people. It stirred the hearts of the people to protect their family. It stirred the hearts of the people up to make a stand against the enemy. To say, no, you can't have my family. Too many people today give up and let the family be taken. But 
God's plan through Nehemiah was, don't let your family go. Fight for your family. You fight for them. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Second thing he does. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Great and awesome. So he gives the people the, the concept, take care of your families, guard your families. But then he tells them, look, remember the Lord. Great and awesome. Remember who gives you the victory. Remember who allowed David to beat Goliath. It wasn't because David was a superior warrior. It's because God was with him. Remember the Lord. That's how Peter was able to walk on the water. Remember the Lord. That's how Peter was able to get out of jail. That's how Paul was able to be bit by a viper and it didn't kill him. Because God was with him. So he says, remember the Lord, great and awesome. Don't forget Him. Don't be afraid of the people. Remember the Lord. There's an old adage that says, if you will fear God, you won't fear anybody else. But if you won't fear God, you will fear everything else. So, He says, fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. It's important for us to understand what what it is God is laying out for us here. Because listen, when we face a situation that, that brings fear in our hearts, we've got to remind ourselves, God is with us. And usually that's the first thing we forget. And when we worry about the future, you never worry about a problem in the future with God standing next to the problem. You worry about a problem in the future and God's not in your thoughts at all. God's power, God's ability, God's strength being with you. We don't forget. And if we remember that, if we don't remember that, we can be like the, the Jews at Kadesh Barnea. You remember Kadesh Barnea? They sent out the spies in the land. And ten of them came back and said, oh, this is not, we can't take it. The giants are too big, it's too hard. And they stole the hearts from the people. Two spies come back and they're like, oh, we got them, man. God is with us. They're standing in the, in the shadow of a giant pillar of fire representing God. A giant cloud outstretched over the people. But they lost sight of God. Stole the hearts of the people. And they were beaten. At Kadesh Barnea, because they forgot their God. We don't want to forget God. We have to remember Him. We have to remember Him and stand where He's asking us to stand. Stand where God would have us stand. Be what God would have us to be. And it says, and it happened, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us return to the wall, everyone to his work. So as soon as everybody got around their houses and they, they gathered their swords and they began to protect their home and family, the enemies backed off. The enemies backed off. They, they didn't want it. They're more than happy to chuck a spear here and there and, and provoke, but they, they weren't looking for that battle. Now they had vastly more army, but I told you they're enemies. None of them was really going to help the other that much. So they they back off. 
they back off. So we've seen ridicule and we've seen the probing of the enemy and, and, and little skirmishes robbing the hearts of the people, but the people rallying around their families, rallying around God being with them and overcoming that attack from outside. What do you think's next? You probably won't be wrong. Well, so it was from that time on, half of my servants worked at construction and the other half held spears and shields and bows and wore armor and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. So all the interruptions to building are ceased. They're able to protect the people and those who built on the wall, verse 17, and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so with one hand they worked at construction, and with the other hand, they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So everybody was armed. Everybody continued the work of God. They didn't go out and go to war. They didn't go attack. They just continued to work. All they wanted to do was build their wall. But as they were building the wall, they had the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. And they continued to build. They did not let discouragement rob them from what they were doing. And it's interesting, I think, they also have the trumpeter. Well, the point of the trumpeter was, if there was an attack, he would sound the trumpet, and that would call all the people to that area. And they would rally at that point. I find that interesting because God has a work to do today and we're called to work it. But while we're doing the work of God, we find ourselves engaged in spiritual battle. And if we will not be prepared for spiritual battle, if we do not put on the armor of God, we cannot defend ourselves against the strikes of the enemy. So we are to have the armor of God on, continue the work of God, listening for what? The trumpet of God. Watch and pray. We're not nowhere in the Bible to say, hey, watch out for the Antichrist. It don't say that. Nowhere does it say to be looking for, for those symbols. It says, listen for the trumpet of God. Listen when God blows the trumpet. Because when He does, He wants to muster all His people with Him. Just like it was for Nehemiah. When the trumpet would sound, the people would run to Him. And I said to the nobles, the rulers, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another. So whenever you hear the sound of the the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. We've got to not forget that part. It's not about what we can do in the fight. Not about how smart we are, how much we can argue. It's about being committed to the Lord and submitted to His hand. There are a lot of people that might be committed but are not submitted. And a committed person who is not submitted is not a lot of help. Someone who's committed and submitted will just do what needs done. My... uh, my sister-in-law 
works at uh, Calvary Chapel in Yukaipa, California. And uh, she said she always wanted to get a shirt for her Sunday school workers that said, just shut up and serve. Because so much complaining and so much bickering and so much we shouldn't do that or we shouldn't do this or let's not do it that way. or let's, it's So all your time is spent arguing and nobody's doing anything. That's committed. Well, I'm committed. I want to do something as long as I'm in charge. That's not submitted. Committed and submitted says what needs done. Somebody need oh somebody needs to pull weeds. They pull weeds. Somebody needs to plant flowers. They plant flowers. You know we have people like that who just see you know what flowers are dead and they come change them, or they say oh the trees need trimmed and they show up and trim them. That's committed and submitted. It's wanting to use their talents to do whatever needs done and not complain or gripe or think somebody else should do it. They just come alongside. And and there's a place for that, right? To be in that. So recognize it's God's place. It's God's house. It's God's kids in Sunday school. It's God's kids in youth group. It's God's people in church. It's His church, not anybody else's church. And God wants us to come and be submitted to Him. What is God want done? And then doing it just works. Not waiting for, for something else to happen. Presenting yourself. So he said, hey, I'm going to sound the trumpet. Everybody's going to come. Everybody's going to show up. And God's going to fight the battle. Does anybody doubt that God gets what he wants? Well, we can go back to Genesis and start over again. We're here at the end of the history does God get what He wants? Does God people... God's people don't always get it. But God does. Is His work accomplished? Did Messiah come? Did He die for our sins? Did He rise again? Is He seated at the right hand of the Father? Did, did God accomplish all He set out to do? Yep. Did it depend on any of us? No. It didn't. All we have to do is be available. And God will use us. To do great things. Committed and submitted. God will fight for us. So we labored in the work. Half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And the same time I also said to the people, Let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by day and a working party uh, and a working party by day. Be our guard by night and a working party. So the guys that lived outside. Nehemiah said, hey, if you guys live outside, stay inside and be a part of what helps us guard at night and then you work during the day. So, oh, did you guys catch that? Guard at night, working a day? When are you sleeping? Guard at night, working a day. Sounds like busy, right? Busy? We didn't invent that in the 21st century. We didn't invent busy. They were busy. Lots of stuff going on. And it says, So neither I, or my brethren, or my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes. Do you understand what that means? 24-7. They're going. 
They're, they're like, the point, of, it's an idiom, it's a figure of speech. It's like, hey, we never took a break. We never stopped. We'll go, go, go. Except when we would wash. Because they still did that. Thank God, right? So they would, they would still wash. He said, um, everyone, uh, except that everyone took them off for washing. Now, they're doing, now people are going. People are committed and submitted, right? People are working like crazy to accomplish a, a, a big deal. They're, they're doing God's work, building up the city. And they're doing all this stuff. And I told you, Satan tried to discourage them. He tried to ridicule them. He tried to poke at them with a stick. And he got them a little bit discouraged. But then the people raised up. And he discovered that all that fighting from the outside is not working. So he joined them. That's not some new thing that the enemy does. The enemy joins the church all the time. He might even be deacons. <laughs> they probably find themselves in leadership here and there with a with a desire to spread dissension between the brethren and cause problems. It's so much easier to do it on the inside sneakily than to do it from the outside while they're blowing trumpets and telling everybody you're coming. Look what it says, chapter five, verse one. It says and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives. What's it say? Against their Jewish brethren. Or they start fighting amongst themselves. Oh, God, God just loves it when that happens, right? Oh, no. It says six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to them. And one of the ones at the beginning of the list, men who sow discord among the brethren, causing brothers to fight. That's the next thing, right? Satan starts to fight from within. When it can't work from without, it starts from within. There's four groups of people that are involved. So let's look at the first group. First group's in verse 2. First group are the people who don't own land and don't have any food. It says, For there are those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. They don't have no food. Now, how do I know they don't have any land? Well, because the next group had land and it tells us what they were doing. Verse 3. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the time of famine. So there's two groups. One don't have any land and they don't have any way, <coughs> nothing to sell to get food. Another group is selling off their stuff to try to buy food. Now, there's, these are brothers. Members of the community starving and and trading and selling their stuff off to other people in the community just so they can have food. Then you have a third group. The third group complains that taxes are too high. It says, there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh <clears throat> is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. So now, the enemy moves in. These are the, the three groups that are hurting. The fourth group is the one that's perpetuating the problem. So the three groups are hurting. Do you guys aware that the poor you have with you always? 
Right? Anybody under the delusion that we can solve poverty without Jesus? Jesus' words, right? Remember Judas said, hey, they should not give you that perfume. They should have sold it and given the money to the poor. And Jesus said, the poor you have with you for how long? Always. That's a long time, right? The poor you have with you always. But you know that God's word always, always called his people to take care of the poor? You guys heard of alms, right? Do you know where all that took place? Right in front of the tabernacle and the temple. The broken, the lame, the the people who can't function or work or who were born blind, right? They stayed in those places. And when the people came to worship, they provided for them. Jesus too. We read in, in, uh, in Acts how... Peter and John coming through the gate beautiful, the golden gate, a gate through which Jesus walked, stopped one time at a man who was lame. Do you remember? And they said, silver and gold have I not, but such as I have I will give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. God's Word in the Old Testament... When the, when the farmers harvested, they were allowed one pass. And the poor could follow. And whatever was left behind, the poor could take. So you had to want to starve to death. Right? Because it was out available for you just like it was for everybody else. Do you know when the, when the farmers would harvest their field, they were not allowed to harvest the corners. So that the poor would have some place to harvest. That God God didn't want to obliterate the poor, but he, he 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 provided for them. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, you guys remember that? And the rampant homosexuality that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, people think that's the reason God destroyed it, but Ezekiel tells us they had fullness of food, idleness of time, And they did not care for the poor. They had everything they needed. Everything they wanted. But they'd let a man starve in the street. But that was never God's way. And it was never God's way to enslave. Although slavery happens, it's all throughout the Scripture, because the Bible don't lie. It tells you what people do. But you know, under God's economy, there was something called the year of Jubilee. You guys ever heard of that? Well, I wish we did that here. Basically, the idea of a year of Jubilee was once in the life of every person. It was every 50 years. All debt would be forgiven. All debt. Whatever you owed. If you had to be sold into slavery to pay a debt, you got turned free. That was... That was God's plan. Because God doesn't want His people all ground down by debt. But He also knows His people tend to grind themselves down by debt. So once a lifetime, every 50 years, God gave a year of jubilee and turned them loose. 
So the poor, the problem is not that these guys are struggling and poor, but I want you to see how Nehemiah responds in verse 6. And I became very angry. Now, is it a sin to be angry? No, Ephesians tells us in chapter 4 that we can be angry and do not sin. Being angry because of something that's taken place is not the sin. What I do with that anger can be, right? The Bible tells me one of the part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So to lose self-control means I'm not walking in the Spirit, I'm walking in the flesh. And I'm not supposed to do that, I'm supposed to walk in the Spirit. So I can be angry. He was angry. He says, and I became very angry. And then what did he do next? When I heard the outcry in these words. And after serious thought. You see that next one? Serious thought. The idea there behind serious thought is to is to take counsel of yourself. To understand what you're angry about. Get your self-control and come up with a solution. That's wrapped up in that word after serious thought. So I'm angry. I kind of got myself together, thought about the problem, had a solution in mind. And then what's it say? I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. So he rebukes the people. Now these are Jews inside the wall who have done this to one another. He says, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. Now, if we don't know what that is, it's simple. They were charging interest. And God's Word said, you loan to a brother, you don't charge him interest. It's straight up. Straight in, straight out. You can loan to your brother, and your brother's responsible to pay you, but you didn't drive him deeper into debt. If he came to you for help, you did not exact usury from your brother. So he calls a great assembly. Now, here's what you got to understand. Who owned the land of Israel? Thank you. Who owned the people of Israel? Yeah. So they both belong to God. The people, no, he's so much fun. The people and the land both belong to God. So God said, Both of these belong to me, and you don't get to use it for personal gain. You can use it to help your brother, but you can't use it to grind your brother down. So God, probably not a great Republican, I don't think. Probably not a Democrat. He's what you would call a, 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 he's a, he's a theocracy, not a democracy. And if we had a theocracy, we'd be in better shape altogether. But the point is, that that was God's concept of economy. You didn't run your brother down. You didn't drive him deeper into debt. So he calls a great assembly. And he said to them, according to our ability, now listen to this, according to our ability, this is Nehemiah and, his, and the guys who came with him, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. So not only were the Jews struggling at home, but some of them had gone into slavery in the nations to the guys who were throwing the spears. They borrowed money from the Philistines, and they couldn't pay it, so the Philistines took them slaves. So Nehemiah paid their debt for them so they could come back. 
Nehemiah expected that from the unbeliever. You understand what I'm saying? He expected that kind of behavior from them. That's his problem. Look, we redeemed those guys. I shouldn't have to do that here. That's your brother. That's your neighbor. What's the Bible say about your neighbor? Do what to him? Oh, love your neighbor. Oh. And what was the story Jesus told about loving our neighbor? The good what? Samaritan. The Samaritans were best friends with the Jews, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. And it turns out the Samaritan was a better neighbor than the Jew. Right? So when he was asked, Lord, who is my neighbor? God explained. Your brother it's your neighbor. We're all related, but we're certainly related in the body of Christ, ain't we? And so looking for a way to help, not to hinder... Now indeed, will you sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. And I said, what you are doing is not good. (coughs) Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations and our enemies? Should you, If you walk in the fear of God, your greatest concern is how you might honor Him. God doesn't need our help. To bring consequences on his people. Do you know that? God's consequences are built in. He's got good consequences. There was no counsel that came against David when he sinned with Bathsheba, was there? Was there a group of guys who got together and said, Okay, now David, since you sinned, this is what we're going to do to you. You're not going to be king for a year and a half. And and if you do enough penitence, we'll make you king again. No, there was no counsel. There was God. And did God bring consequences? Yeah. You think every person on the street was aware of it? I don't think they were. I don't think everybody knew that Bathsheba was pregnant. I don't think everybody knew that his child died. I think a lot of people thought, oh, David just gets off scot-free with whatever he does. But if you talk to David, you get a different story, wouldn't you? I think sometimes it's important for us to realize and to recognize we do not always have all the information of what's going on in somebody's life. You don't know what's happening in their family, in their heart, what goes on, what God's doing, working in them. And and you're hard-pressed to find Scripture that says, well, Jackie, it's your job to give consequences to people. Now, it might be my job to confront them in sin, and I've had to do it. I just confront them in their sin. Their their repentance is open and free to them between them and God. But it's not my job to give them the consequences. Well, now that you've done that, I'm going to beat you with a whip. Why did the why did the, uh, um, who am I thinking? Of? Martin Luther. How did he walk around when he was a priest with a whip, whipping himself? Why? Why was he whipping himself all the time? Trying to pay penance. For the thoughts that he had and the things that he'd done. That used to be the church was like that. So worried about having to pay for what Jesus Christ has already paid for. Right? So the idea, the concept, you know, is not, hey, I need to, I need to cause them trouble. I need to say, 
God is able to do what He needs to do in that person's life. Right? Now, if God calls me, i got to confront Him. And sometimes, and this has happened at least twice, God has had me tell somebody, Hey, uh, don't come back. This is an issue. We talk. They don't buy it. I don't look for that. That's not fun. Nobody goes, Woo, can I do that? Hey, I want to be part of that crew. Let's let's find people to, to, to ask to leave the church. Woo, whippy. Nobody wants to do that. But sometimes the Bible tells us there is sin that we are responsible to confront. And if it's not... If they're not willing to deal with it, then then we should put them outside. Treat them as an unbeliever. Now, that doesn't mean we shun them or we hate them. I don't hate them. I still love the people I had to talk to and, and pray every day that relationship can be restored. But it's not on me. As far as I'm concerned, we're good. <laughs> I think they both want to kill me, but but that's beside the point. So... But the point is, it's not my job to put their consequences on them. It's just my job to deal with the issue. That's what Nehemiah does. He says, hey guys, you're wrong. Walk in the fear of God. Let God do that work. Let God do that part. You don't need to do it. And I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. So please stop. Nehemiah says, I'm giving them money and I'm not charging interest. I'm just trying to help my brother. Are you able to do that? You know, in the New Testament, just in case you think this is Old Testament only, the Bible says, if it's within your power to help your brother and you don't do it, you're in sin. If it's in your power to help your brother and you don't do it, it's not okay. Maybe. Maybe. You got to do, you got to, if it's, if it's, if it's something that you're able to help. Now, we're talking about brethren, believers. So, not just everybody who walks through the door. That's not the idea. But Jesus says, if they come to you and ask you for your, your coat, give them your cloak also. If He bids you, if He forces you to walk one mile, go with Him too. Right? If He slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to Him. So that the idea certainly is there on the pages of Scripture, the the heart of Christ. He doesn't ask us to do anything He didn't do. And then in verse 11, He says, Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and a hundredth of the money uh, and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. The hundredth was a way of uh, that they charged the usury. So the hundredth basically was 12% yearly was what they charged. And so He's saying, give them back. Give it all back. Give back what you're making off of them. Give them back their land. You know, just, just stop. If your brother's starving, help him eat. Don't make him poorer. Don't make him your slave. Help him. So, it says, they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them. That they would do according to the promise. So the problem wasn't just the people. The priests were doing it too. And I shook out the fold of my garment and I said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his property 
who does not perform this promise. Even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied. And the people said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did according to the promise. So, the attack from the inside, all this infighting was about selfishness and brother pushing brother down to get himself up. You guys get what I'm saying? Pushing somebody else down to, to work your way up. So that's what they were doing. So they overcome it. And then it says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the, the 20th year until the 32nd year, King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. So they didn't live off their expense accounts. They could have, but they didn't. They, they had their own and they used their own. It says, but the former governors who were, who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine and forty shekels of silver, and even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. He didn't charge them tax. He's their governor, appointed by Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is not just some schmuck who showed up. He's a Jew appointed governor by the king of the entire world at the time. And he comes down, but he didn't charge tax. He didn't take all the advantages that were available to him among the people. He just wanted to help them. He wanted to help them build their wall and get the city going again. So it wasn't about that stuff. It wasn't about selfishness. So the the point here at the end of chapter 5 is saying, look... Nehemiah is not just saying to these guys, don't be selfish and do these things to your brother. It says Nehemiah wasn't doing that. The Bible calls it this, living above reproach. It's called having a good reputation among the community. It's it's not lying and cheating, even if everybody else is. It's not okay. It shouldn't be that. And it certainly should not be that for leaders. There are two very specific sections of Scripture that tell us about the requirements of deacons and elders. Very specific. For one group, the Bible says, they should not be given to much wine. Which means, hey, it'd be okay if they drank, but they... It shouldn't be a problem for them. For the other group, for the next group of leaders beyond deacons, it says they should not be given, period. Now, is that because drinking is such a horrible sin? No, it's not a sin. It's about being above reproach. It's about living your life in a fishbowl and inviting people to look in and about recognizing those things in our life that could cause them to see things that maybe we don't want them to see. So we give up of our liberties so that we might in a better way serve God. It's not about, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. It's about what what can I, what do I, what can I give up so I can serve him better? What can I lay aside so I can serve God better? If there's something that you would say, well, I would never give this up to serve the Lord, then you are in a bad spot. 
that's not a that's not a good place to be. It doesn't matter what it is. I should be willing. If it hinders me from serving God, let it go. And the further, the higher we get in terms of responsibility within the brethren, the more accountability. Everybody understand that? And it it happens as soon as you take a step up one of these. If you come up there and pray, people are watching. If you stand up here and sing, people are watching. All those, if you teach a kid in Sunday school and they see you in the store, people are watching, right? It's about what's going to help others grow, not about what's important for me. And that's how Nehemiah was. It was he had rights. He could have charged them tax. He could have had everything at their expense. He could have made sure they did it all. But he didn't do any of that. He just lived in a way that didn't cost the people what he was for, for how and what he was living. It says, then indeed, I also continued the working on the wall. And Nehemiah didn't just stand back. He still had a troll in his hand and a, and a sword in the other. He did what he called his people to do. Same thing. Not something different. I continued to work on the wall. We did not buy any land. He said, I didn't buy a house. I didn't buy land. My job was to work on a wall. That's what God brought me here for. So I worked on the wall. Didn't buy land. Didn't buy a house. Well, he lived somewhere. So he rented from somebody, right? And he, and he, because he's there 12 years, he didn't just sleep in the gutter. But he didn't buy. It wasn't about me. It was about what can I do? Focused on his purpose. And then at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. He always shared whatever he had with whoever. He'd eat with anybody. 150 Jews. When's the last time you had 150 people over your house for dinner? Uh, it's somewhat impractical for us, right? Uh, I don't have whatever he's going to tell us. Uh, uh, he prepared one whole ox and six sheep every day. Oh, man. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of food. but And it's a lot of trouble, isn't it? But he's not griping about it. He's just saying... I care about the people, so I want to. I want to spend time with the people, and I want to do the things that the people are doing. You know, the first thing that we got to understand about ministries: ministries, people. It's not programs. It's not about. Not that programs are in and of themselves evil, but it's people. When can you minister to people the greatest? Look, the least amount of ministering that I can do in my week happens when I stand behind that pulpit, and it's probably the least effective. At least a third of the people are sleeping whenever I do it. <laughs> so, that's not so effective. You know what's effective? When I get together with people during the week, when I go over to their house for dinner, or they come over to my house for dinner, when I, when I meet somebody to go fishing. Because it's when we're sitting there with a string dipped in water that they start telling me about what's going on in their life. And I have opportunity to do real ministry which is caring about what's going on with people, what's happening in their life. Or they come, they need to talk. I need to talk. So, you know, sometimes they don't need to talk at normal hours. <laughs> sometimes 
sometimes it's not even an emergency. Like they cut their leg off or something and they need me uh, at the hospital. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's just a crisis of the soul and they need somebody to talk to and it's one in the morning or two in the morning. And it's if ministry's people, it's my job to say, let's talk. That's that's what it's about. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. Look, I, 150 people, it cost me something. Sometimes it costs me sleep. Sometimes it, it, it may cost something else. I don't know. But the point is, it's about them, not about us. It's about them. How do we meet their needs? The single most important thing we can ever do at Calvary Chapel Buell is hug somebody every time they walk in the door. Find somebody who's sitting by themselves and nobody's talking to in a corner. Find somebody who's by themselves up front. I see it every week. We, we say, hey, go find someone you know, someone you don't. Shake their hand, welcome them here, give them a hug. And I'll see, there's a person, didn't even stand up. It breaks my heart when I don't see nobody go over to them. I know they got a wall built around them and, and you're like, wow, that guy looks mean or cranky or grumpy or I don't know if I want to get close to him. But that's our job. We got to get to that person. That person who hides in the back or, or off on the edges. We got to touch them and love them and tell them Jesus loves them. That's the whole point of us being here. Otherwise, we're missing it. It's not about us. It's about what we can do or give to someone else. Well, they cooked the oxen, six sheep. Also, fowl was prepared for me. And once every ten days in abundance, all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provision because the bondage was heavy on the people. He didn't, I didn't require it from them. They, they weren't able to bear it. They weren't able to bear it. And then he says in verse 19, So remember me, my God, for good, to all that I have done for this people. He's not telling the people about it. He's just saying, God... Remember, you know the Bible says God will remember all the things you've ever done for His people. Every time you went out on a limb and got burnt, the Bible says, don't grow weary in doing good, for you shall receive reward in due season, in due time. For God will not forget your labor of love. Ever. And that's who we're supposed to be doing it for anyway. 